Hey guys, it's Jake Lundahl with Lundahl Performance. I just wanted to drop a quick note in the podcast feed to encourage you, if you haven't already, to subscribe in whatever app you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, subscribe to the channel so you stay in the loop and you don't miss any new episodes. Our new posting schedule uh, for episode 30 and beyond is that every episode will come out every other Friday. So the main episodes will be every other Friday. We'll have some extras and bonus content in between, and we have an ambitious goal of 50 new episodes this year. With your guys' support and additional sponsorship opportunities that have opened up, we've been able to get better recording equipment, some better software, try to deliver a little bit better quality on the recording end of it, and we've had a ton of listener feedback, not just positivity, which we've been super grateful and appreciative of, but a lot of training questions and things we really want to get to in the podcast. We've got so much good stuff lined up in the queue, and we've got more than enough content for 50 episodes. Uh, just a matter of getting it done. But those episodes are going to be dropping every other Friday from now on, episode 30 and beyond. So I want to make sure you stay in the loop. Subscribe if you haven't already, and if you like the show, help it grow. Give us a rating if you feel it is appropriate. On the subject of gratitude, though, and this is the main reason I'm, I'm doing this segment, is we had a lot of positivity and um, support when we announced that Juliana Hillman was going to be a part of the Lundell Performance team. And so we're developing two different segments to what we call our Horseman's Academy. There's the paid lessons, the, the training packages, the videos, that side of it on one end, and then there's the actual people that come to work with us in like a apprenticeship role. And obviously, being a smaller organization, we don't have a lot of spots open right away for people to actually physically come work with us. We've had a few initial people that we have some prior knowledge of and, and relationship with that have shown a lot of interest, that have taken up those initial spots and filled them. Juliana's not the only one. Uh, we'll announce the others in the coming months. On the paid side of the academy, there's virtually unlimited availability. And in fact, what's going to be great about this is the more capable trainers we bring in to be a part of our team, the academy is just going to get better because they'll be making content of their own. They'll be helping to answer training questions, do video critiques, manage the clients that we have in the academy that want hardcore lesson plans and guidance and advice and help with their horses. So while we're building our team, we're building that team to service everybody else that's in, in the, the course and the lesson side of the academy, as well as helping us teach actual in-person lessons, clinics, and take in horses for training. So the key to growing what we're doing here is going to be bringing quality people on board and building a good tight-knit team of people working together under a shared vision. And to a lot of people that know us, this was an unexpected move, that so early on in our operation, we would try to be bringing on additional people, other trainers, in fact, and trying to grow our business that way. And a lot of people have asked us, well, why are you doing this, especially so early on? What's, what's driving this? What is the point? And to know something about that, um, you'd have to know a little bit about our background and some of our influences and kind of the, the people that we look up to. Um, one thing that we, we both got involved with in our young lives was baseball. And we had one of our coaches, Bill Olson, who we talked about in a prior podcast as an example of real mentorship, like 
a role model of what a teacher and a coach should be. And how even though obviously we're not playing baseball anymore, that stuck with us for, for many years. And we still use him, as, as Luke put it, our North Star in a way, of how we need to be treating clients and especially kids and, and younger professionals that we work with. Because there's been so many instances in our own careers where we had just a level of ego and drama and, and just negativity being deployed against us. We don't want to recreate that. And it, in fact, doesn't have to be that way. You know, I can't, I, I don't know how many people I've talked to, like older trainers that are just, it's like they get off on acting old and bitter and cynical. Like that's the character that they adapt to themselves of, of I'm this old, bitter, cynical, you know, basically my way or the highway type of dude. Whereas you look at a guy like Bill Olson, who's been just grinding it for decades, not one ounce of negativity coming out of his mouth ever. And it amazes me that, that horse people are so, you know, just such snobs. Like you get to ride horses every day in a glorified sandbox for a living. Don't tell me your job is harder than coaching major league pitchers uh, and actually playing baseball yourself at a high level. You know, like it's not the same thing. We have a lot of privileges here uh, other than, you know, beyond what normal human athletes are, are often afforded. And, and so many people, so many trainers just take that for granted and they deploy this bitterness and cynicism that we detest because we've been on the receiving end of it. So we use Bill Olson as an example of what I think a teacher should be. In no matter what sport you're in, whether it's something like baseball or a traditional sport like that or horsemanship, that's who we want to be like. And on an organizational level, getting back to why we're doing the academy and why we're bringing in trainers at this early stage of the game for us, why are we trying to build a team already? Well, we take inspiration, both Luke and I are huge motorsports fans. You know, I, I really love NASCAR. I've, I've always been a Formula One fan. Any type of racing I'm a fan of. I know Luke is a huge NASCAR fan as well. We both especially love just stock car racing in general, whether it's the high levels like Sprint Cup of NASCAR or just, you know, the weekend dirt track racing. Um, we find it fun. So if, if you're listening to this and you have some familiarity with racing, then you'll be able to relate to this a lot. But in... In NASCAR, there's an organization called Hendrick Motorsports. And if you haven't done so and you're somewhat interested even in motorsports, I would encourage you to watch the documentary Together. It's it's a movie called Together, the Hendrick Motorsports Story. It's basically a documentary, but even the title should give away the fact that what has always characterized the Hendrick um, motto or just the way of doing things has been a focus on teamwork, always. Um, you know, you have a guy, Rick Hendrick, who he, he was basically like in his late 20s running a used car lot with a friend of his, and they both loved racing speedboats. That's what they were into. Um, so they, they were motorsports fans. They did speedboat racing. They eventually got into stock cars, and they, they had some backers, and they had some money of their own from a successful used car business. They got into NASCAR at the low levels. And NASCAR back then was not relevant in any, any way to, you know, wider American culture. You know, nowadays you've got the Daytona 500 and a lot of the major races and championships make national headlines. You've got a lot of drivers that are famous in their own right that do a lot of media appearances, television podcasts, 
YouTube, you name it, like they're out there. They're celebrities. Big name sponsors from all industries are pouring money into NASCAR. But back then it was just a bunch of rednecks and gearheads and rich friends of theirs who were bankrolling everything that would just go play on the weekends with their race cars. And it, it wasn't really serious yet. It hadn't been refined. And so they got into NASCAR in those early days when it was still kind of Wild West and it was still a Southern, you know, good old boy type of a thing. Hadn't really matured as an industry. And they became successful enough uh, that they were able to start fielding a two-car team. So you had one organization, one team, that was going to field two race cars at the highest level of, of the sport which was unheard of at the time. Because prior to that, everybody had kind of an individualistic, um, self-centered view of what racing was. You know, it, to, be a to be a superstar in racing back then, at least prior to this, this era, um, you were a driver who was also a gearhead, uh, who was handy with a wrench. Maybe you had a few gearhead buddies, a rich friend, or your dad was rich. Uh, or maybe you had the money uh, or had a sponsor or two to build a car and go race. And and it was unheard of that someone would have an organization that would field multiple cars because it was, you know, back then a team was just one guy in the car and whoever was around him in the shop or or bankrolling the whole thing, that was your team. No one had really thought of of doing it differently until Hendrick Motorsports came along. So they got laughed at, made fun of, uh, you know, this is stupid, why are you doing this, blah, blah, blah. Well, they innovated in a lot of other areas, too, and, and needless to say, they became highly, highly successful. Because what really characterizes Rick Hendrick, and a lot of people say this about him, is that he's a master of bringing together a team of people who have complementary talents and abilities and personalities. He just knows how to put together a team of people that will build each other up and, and be excellent. And, and that goes to every level. You know, one, one of the real big areas that they innovated um, as NASCAR was becoming more refined, more money was coming in, there was tighter restrictions. It wasn't the Wild West of, like, you know, people with, with um, oversized fuel lines to, to bend the rules on how much fuel could be in the car. Or I mean, it was wild. You had people, like, inflating basketballs during inspection. Then they deflate it for the race, and their tank would hold five extra gallons of fuel. All sorts of ways to cheat. There was there was just random guys and third-party engine builders that specialized in in just basically cheating, like getting any advantage that you could. It was total pell-mell Wild West. If you look at the the original history of like you know the the cutting and the reining horse industries, you you see a lot of the same stuff. Sometimes on a pretty barbaric level. Like, there was a big hubbub on Facebook a while back about a guy that was, you know, like an old-school trainer. A lot of people still look up to him, by the way, who was talking about just how crazy it was back in the day. You had people, like, you know, deadening their horse's ears and tying them forward with string run under the, the headstall of the bridle so the horse wasn't pinning its ears the whole time. You had people, you know, drilling holes in a horse's teeth and tying their jaw shut with piano wire so they're not gapping their mouth and... And if you find some of those old videos, even from the early 90s of reigning, it looks nothing like the industry does today. That's exactly what NASCAR was like. You know, another another area where innovation happened was in pit stops, you know, getting fuel and new tires and stuff during the race. It used to be that you would leisurely stroll down pit road, 
pull up to your spot. You had a few buddies that were like your friends or your dad or just a couple people you bribed with a couple cases of beer were out there with like white t-shirts on, cigarettes hanging out of their mouths as they put gas in your car and changed tires. And it was just some random people you found or bribed with a case of beer to be on your team for the day. That was your pit crew. Well, Hendrick comes along and they, they, they literally invented what they called the choreography of the pit stop, meaning we're going to actually recruit guys that are athletic and have talent. It's not just random people from the garage. And we're going to develop a sophisticated way to do everything from changing tires to adjustments to fuel. And so these guys are going to be a team that specialize in getting this done as quickly as possible and develop the movements and techniques to do it, you know, rather than just being random people. And so once that can of worms got opened, the rest of the industry had to race to catch up because so much innovation and advantage was being gained on that front. Uh, and they were highly successful before other teams caught up, you know, because the, the amount of wiggle room and the amount of influence over the victory or the chances of winning that the driver had on the track was slowly going away as other things like build quality of the engines and, um, you know, just rather than just the car running fast and having a good motor, like now we're talking about seriously scientific study of like aerodynamics and, and making wedge adjustments, all kinds of different things. It became an entire science. It, it got completely taken to a whole new level beyond just fill her up and go, you know, put the hammer down. It wasn't rough and tumble anymore. It became an art almost. And any possible tenth of a second that could be squeezed out of anywhere, that efficiency was pursued relentlessly. And it took the entire sport to a whole new level. You know, another area that, that Hendrick innovated was not only fielding a multi-car team, having guys that were that were practicing the choreography and specializing in something that had previously been laughed at or seen as just a kind of a side thing, right? Um, you know, the, the pit crews in the old days would be would be comparable to like lopers now in the horse industry. It's just like just guys that are just, you know, kind of in your corner, just doing the work, you know, but you've not really invested a lot into training them, like really, tr really training them, like making them experts in their own right. They're just a guy that's there, you know, like a, a warm body to get some labor out of. And people had the same, the same, you know, negative things to say when they started doing that. Ah, ha, ha, that's so stupid. Um, why would you do this? This is a huge waste of time. This is a bunch of crap. Well, look at them all now. They're all doing it. So they were influential in that way. Another area where Hendrick became influential is they in-house, you know, they built wind tunnels. They did engine testing. They build all their own stuff, and in fact, they sell engines because they're so good at their craft now. They sell engines to their competitors. Other high-level race teams that compete against them still buy engines from Hendrick because they're just that good. Like, they made everything a science. They did everything to, to a level of excellence that had never been before seen. And the only reason they were able to do that is because Rick Hendrick, behind the scenes, was a master at bringing people together who could work as a team and get to a whole new level. There's a certain art in bringing together a good quality team of people. And so not only have Luke and I looked up to that and wanted to emulate that for many years when we finally got a chance to do so, 
You know, we've always had that desire. But where that became really powerful was when, you know, Luke, myself, and Juliana, in fact, all had a chance to work for, for a few mentors, one in particular who could have been, could have been the Hendrick Motorsports of the industry. He was bringing together a team of high-quality people, pouring hours upon hours of effort into training them. Um, they were getting exposure. They were getting noticed as being capable trainers in their own right, but they were still part of a wider organization that had a, a uniting mission and goal. All these people were highly motivated, despite the dysfunctionality and, and stuff going on in some areas of the organization. They were hardworking people. And, you know, this this company for a while had the A-team, had great people there. Could have been the Hendrick Motorsports of the, of the horse world. And the opportunity was totally squandered through stupid decision-making, petty egos, and drama, and and literally making a determined effort to hold people back. Rather than trying to leverage their unique talents, it was about, oh no, you don't get too big for your britches. If you're excelling in some way or you want to specialize in something, no, you don't get to you don't get to explore that at all. Uh, and so that that restriction drove everybody away. Could have had the A team, could have had could have been the Hendrick of the horse world. Opportunity got pissed away. But Luke and I are dedicated to salvaging that opportunity, and that is one of our, if not the driving mission of what we're trying to do now. And again, just like Hendrick in the early days, people are going to look at that and laugh, think it's stupid, uh, you know, cast negative judgment on us or the people that we're bringing on board. But they'll eventually see that there's some merit to this idea. And I don't care how many years we've got to grind but we will figure out how to build a excellent, not just good, not solid, but excellent team of people united under the same banner. Instead of like one or two trainers that, that you know, we're, we're the king of the show, basically. No, I don't care about that. I want to build an organization of people, both on the client and the trainer side, that have a united goal in mind that's bigger than than just the showing and the day-to-day grind and put opportunities in front of people and try to figure out a way to bring people together in a way that boosts everybody. Something that Hendrick Motorsports became known for and figured out how to do to an extraordinary level. That is how you achieve true success. It's not about me, me, me all day. It's not about what I can do. It's about what can we do. So Bill Olson on a personal teaching level is a massive inspiration to us on an organization level Hendrick Motorsports we see so many parallels between what they did and the challenges that they faced in racing a lot of that stuff applies to the way we look at the horse industry so I won't blather on for too long about that or spill all the beans on what we're doing behind the scenes that we're keeping under wraps you know I don't want to oversell everything we have a lot of projects going on under the surface things will come out over time But if you want to kind of know what road we're going down, I encourage you to look into the history of Hendrick Motorsports and even watch the documentary if you're a fan of racing together, the Hendrick Motorsports story. It's pretty fascinating and and pretty interesting documentary about arguably the most successful organization in history in that sport. Anyway, that's all for today, guys. Talk to you again soon.